Okay, so if everybody's here, I've turned on the iClicker cloud and I've left the attendance running so that you can actually just log in and in case your phone is too slow or something is wrong, um, I'll at least see that you're, you're here in the attendance. But I noticed it was showing on the little panel, it shows zero attendees and I'm not sure what's going on there. Um, are some of you logged in? Yeah, okay. Let's see, let's see what's going on. Yeah, I'm not sure why it's doing that. Yeah, let me go back to let me go back to where I had it. I have a feeling it may have to do with the fact that I told it to take attendance. Okay, there we go. Checked in, 96, not checked in. Okay. I'm not sure why it's doing that, but... Um, start again. Okay, there we go, 97. Great. so we're back and uh, I'm going to leave the lights on the higher level so there's no temptation to fall asleep although the temptation is great at such an early time and uh, today is probably since it's Friday it's probably going to be a bit of a shorter class and we're going to go over a lot of the things that we talked about last time which was biology of the eye parts of the eye rods and cones that we discussed in detail but then in terms of new material, we're going to talk about trichromacy, which was this idea of three different colors, red, green, and blue, being the basis for vision. Uh, a little bit about the history of that and more of the opponent process. We touched on the opponent process last time with a very brief explanation, but it actually gets to be quite a complicated um, process and if especially if you go into the chemistry of it and the neuroscience of it we're not going to look at molecules or exact chemical reactions at this point but we are going to go into a little more detail about the opponent process and why it's important for us seeing in color we'll talk a little bit more about color blindness and then we'll get to synesthesia which is really I find a really, really interesting area. That's the transfer of different senses. So you could, instead of seeing colors, you could hear colors or feel colors. And this is a real phenomenon. It's not a disorder. It's not categorized as, as it's not common, but it's not a, uh, a deficiency. And we'll see what somebody with synesthesia may experience the world like through a video. And then finally we'll just talk about a few color associations and color and emotion, color and psychology and how that all ties together to seeing color and understanding color. So I don't see her here at the moment but 
your, one of your class reps, BJ, has uh, set up a study session, kindly set up a study session for you. So everybody is welcome. I've posted her screenshot here. So she has last names, groups I to L, group K, groups M to P, group N. I'm not sure if she will have discussed that with you, but uh, thanks to BJ, you can attend one of these two sessions at um, Scott Library. So if you're panicking about the assignment, you'll have a chance to discuss that as well. So, th so this is, the first session is on Monday between so 2.30 on Monday, end time is 2.30, starts at 1.30 to 2.30 Monday. And then the second session is the Tuesday. And again, it's one, uh, 12, 12 o'clock to 1.30 on Tuesday. So please take advantage of that. In addition, uh, I'll be holding an office hour next week. So you can come and ask me any last minute questions about the assignment. Um, my office is over toward uh, the Dale building, which is used to be Tao building, but it's in a little area called the Teaching Commons, which is a little bit hard to find. So if you're going basically to find me in this session, go to the Dale building. It's on the first floor. It's room 1050. You'll see a big series of glass doors. It'll say Teaching Commons, Seneca at York. And you go in there, there'll be a big reception desk. And behind the reception desk is a lounge area with lots of sort of comfortable chairs. And you'll find me there uh, able to answer your questions for the assignment. How's everybody sort of doing with the assignment? Do you feel that you had enough time? Do you feel, just show of hands, who feels that they probably need an extension? So I think I probably will extend it by a couple days. Um, I'm not going to make a habit of doing that, so please don't expect that I will always extend the assignment deadlines. But this is the first one, so let's see how this goes. So Wednesday, if you want to come see me from 12.30 to 1.30, I'll probably be there after that. But starting at 12.30, you can drop into the Teaching Commons lounge area. Let's start with a brief review of rods and cones. And let me also start by making sure that I started recording, because I think I may not have. No, I, I did. I always forget that. Rods and cones. On the left, you have a conal diagram. This is a diagram of the inside of the eye. And you'll recall from last time we have three types of cone cells. Cone cells are photoreceptor cells that are in the retina, which is sort of the back layer that coats the eye and gives you sort of a direct channel to your brain through the optic nerve. So in this conal map of the eye, you can see there are red, green, and blue cones. And last time we discussed the populations of the red and green and blue cones. And it turns out you have, all people have the smallest number of blue cones. It's about 6% or so, 6 to 10% of all of the cones that you have are blue cones. Uh, with green being the next most common and red being the most common. 
with about 66, two-thirds of all the cones in your eye are red cones. This area where you see a high concentration of red and green cones is the area we call the fovea, which is along the optical, so along the axis of vision. So from your pupil, it goes straight along to your eye and it has a kind of a pit and a depression. And it's this fovea area that gives us high vision acuity and really sharp, clear images. We say often, an important point to remember is we say red, green, and blue cones. Well, you'll remember from the earlier lecture that all color, I mean, color is basically just a property of light. Color is the wavelength. And depending on the wavelength, you'll see a certain different color. This diagram is a diagram of the peak wavelength that those, each of those cones are sensitive to. So roughly, we see the continuous spectrum along the bottom, going from the short wavelengths in the blue, at about 400 nanometers or so, to the longer wavelengths in the red, at about 700 nanometers. If you look sort of carefully, you'll see the peaks aren't quite um, red, green, and blue. They're a little bit more like blue-violet, greeny-yellow, and green. So keep that in mind because later on when we talk about the rods and cones and opponent process theory, this makes a difference to everything. But for now we're calling it red, green, blue, uh, short, medium, long, wavelength, because that's the easiest. This is a map of essentially the full set of colors that you can generate from those three red, green, and blue hues. Like on your assignment, when you have the value number going from 0 to 255 of red, green, and blue that you have in each color, recall that a set of primaries would be three colors that are capable of being combined to make all of the other colors that we see. So in television, in our eye, typically in printing, we do use red, green, and blue as our three primaries. And this is the kind of spread you can get of different colors. You won't get all of the colors, but you will get uh, about 16 million of them, of which the eye can distinguish about 10 million, which is quite incredible when you think about it. So how did this all come to be and how did we come to know this? How did we even think about tricolor vision in the first place? Let's go take a look at a brief history of trichromacy or three colors. So even before we understood the eye and its complexity in a, in a really well understood manner, we had uh, obviously the printing press and we had plates being reproduced, engravings being reproduced. And actually in the 1700s, it was just after Newton's crucial experiment, there was a man by the name of Jacob or Jacob Christophe Leblanc, who is a German artist and an engraver. And he is actually sort of the forefather of our modern printing process. Don't worry if you can't read this. 
It's just there to show you what the historical document looked like. But what it is, is a book that he published in 1722 uh, called Colorito. And he talked in this book about how to use different kinds of metal plates and combine them in different ways, three different colors, red, green, blue, basically, to achieve all of the colors in prints of books. So he was a painter and engraver. His interest was from an art perspective. He actually painted miniatures, which take uh, a lot of skill and a lot of detail. But they were like photos you carry around, essentially, of your loved ones. Uh, so he had a keen eye for color. His system of color, which he invented, it used, he invented two systems, both a three-color system and a four-color system. The three-color one is kind of like the red, green, and blue. The four-color was a red, yellow, blue, and in K is black. Because we had CMYK printing, K is black. This was all around 1722. That's pretty impressive if you think about it, color printing in 1722. So again, as I said, he used metal plates of different colors. And he interwove them to create beautiful color illustrations. And this is the basis of all of our technology today, which we'll get into in future lectures about printing and televisions and how all those processes differ. For the meantime, though, he was a trichromat. We're, we're, we are all trichromats because we see basically with three colors. But he set the stage for the printing process, which is basically trying to reproduce what we see in our eye. Now, the people who actually developed tricolor theory for the eye, two of them we talked about last time. We talked about Thomas Young and Hermann von Helmholtz. Both of them were physicists, shown here. I do realize this is a little bit small, but you'll be able to see it when I post it in detail. We didn't talk about Maxwell. This uh, gentleman here is James Clark Maxwell. So the British usually, it's spelled clerk, the British usually pronounce it Clark. Surprise, he was another physicist. He gave us so much, basically our modern understanding of light and color. So in terms of trichromatic colors, these are the big three, the big three sort of personalities. Thomas Young, who first proposed that the eye had three modes of vibration. If you think about vibration, now that we know that light is a wave, we know that basically everything is a collection of vibrations. So he wasn't that far off. It's just a signal that vibrates at a certain frequency. Hermann von Helmholtz later worked with Young on this theory, and in 1867 published a comprehensive volume, Physiological Optics, to really explain how the eye worked. And then Clark Maxwell came along. He'd been thinking about color for a long time. He'd been thinking about light. He was actually the person who discovered that a moving, a changing electric current, moving elect electrons, will generate a magnetic field. And he came along, he did extensive experimentation on color, and we'll see his contributions in a moment. 
Before that, though, given we had the advent of color printing in 1722 or so, I'm curious, with your eye clickers, take out your phones, and let me know, what do you think, when do you think the first color photograph was actually taken? So what do you think? Was it 1779, around the American Revolution, 1901, 1922, 1861, or 1885? Okay, I'll give it a couple more moments. All right, I'm going to close it off now. 45. And uh, see, you're, you're good. You're always getting everything right. Um, the answer is D, 1861, as most of you say. And it wouldn't be much of a leap to think that I'm leading you to Clark Maxwell, and indeed, I am. So it was James Clark Maxwell who actually gave us our first color photograph. This is a young Maxwell, and he's sitting here, I believe it's in Cambridge, with his color wheel. He had a device that was kind of like the color wheel, where he had different, all the seven different colors on the top of it. It was attached to sort of like a piston, and, and he would spin it. And basically, he could demonstrate Newton's experimentum crucis. If you span it fast enough, if you spin all a disk with all the colors fast enough, the disk appears white. So all the colors seem to combine in your vision, and you see white. So that's what he's doing very proudly in this picture. He's a little older on here, and um, these Range symbols and numbers beside him are the, uh, the electromagnetic equations. These are the fundamental equations of electromagnetism in classical physics. So when he was younger, he experimented extensively with color. He has this color wheel device. He uh, looks especially at additive optical color mixing. So when we say additive mixing, we're talking often about light, mixing colors of light. He used a projector and mixed different colors of light to see what the effects would be. And basically got all of the additive mixing combinations that we know today, like blue, for instance, and red. If you take two lights and project them, combine them on a screen, you get magenta. He published uh, experiments on color as perceived by the eye. And that was in 1855. And this is, again, another beautiful volume of a detail of all of his experiments with diagrams, explanations, and calculations. And then finally, actually in close to the same, uh, in 1861, he produces this color photograph. And the way he did it was, through his experiments, he was guided 
to see that if you combined sort of red, green, and blue together, you got an increased depth and an increased three-dimensionality and in fact kind of an echo of the colors in an image. So in 1861, he took this idea and I'll show you in a moment exactly how he did it. And lastly, why is this so important to understanding color? Well, it's only fitting that Maxwell really gave us our modern understanding of color after all, he's the man who, who basically developed the electromagnetic classical field equations. And that is none other than light, which is none other than color. So what he did in order to get a photograph, he didn't actually take the photograph himself. He had a photographer take this, but used a projector to project red light, green light, and blue light at a screen, combining all of these channels and then taking a photograph of the end result, which showed up in color. Now, in case you can't really tell what that is, um, it's like a tartan ribbon. So he, he took a picture of this tartan ribbon, and let's take a look at what the actual picture looks like. This is the actual picture from 1861. The way, again, it was produced is by combined red, green, and blue light. If you're interested in learning more about that, there is a, a great website, the Clark Maxwell Foundation. And they have lots of uh, history. And let's take a look at this video really quickly to take a look more in detail. In 1855, James Clark Maxwell suggested a method of combining three monochrome images of a monochrome, red, green, blue, to produce a color. In 1861, the photographer, Thomas Sutton, working with Maxwell, made three images of the top of ribbon using color filter. Our demonstration uses a tile present. Transparencies were made from the results of monochrome images. These were projected through red, green, and blue filters. These images were then superimposed on a screen. So you can see the additive light mixture, green and blue, cyan. This resulted in a composite image containing all of the colors in the original object. The world's first Okay, sorry, that wasn't very loud. I'm not exactly sure why. He sounded very excited. Okay. So that was the world's first color photograph. And uh, when you're trying to take a photograph or represent anything realistically, you're just trying to, to re- invent the process of vision. So let's take a review quickly of what vision is, of how we see colors. So there are two parts to how we see colors. The first one is through collecting the actual light by the you know, physical hardware, by the optics, and that's the eye. And then the signal that comes in from that light, from those incoming photons that hit the retina and hit the cones on the retina, are then 
uh, converted into a signal that goes to our brains, which we interpret later, as we'll see, through opponent process theory. It's pretty straightforward there. Last time we had a diagram, we went in depth into each of the different parts of the eye presented in this diagram. Uh, the lens, again, is, is a key part of the eye, which allows you to focus, lets you, by the contractions and elongation of the lens, which is controlled by the ciliary muscles, you get the lens either being thicker and contracted or elongated and thinner. And that allows you to focus on near and far objects. If you were to go a little bit deeper into this particular diagram, let's say you were going to just cut out a little section of the retina here. The human retina is actually kind of weird because it's backward. So there are different layers in the retina where the rods and cones are, but the rods and cones are at the third and final, the back layer of that. So if you were to be able to look at that, this is something what you would see. This is the outer wall of the retina with light coming in. And there's three layers, the ganglion cell layer, a bipolar cell layer, and finally the photoreceptor layer, which is where the rods and cones are. Those are photoreceptive cells. The ganglion cell layer, these are nerve cells. And these are really the things that are responsible for transducing or converting the signal from the photons and passing it as a neural impulse through the optic nerve to the brain. The bipolar cells have a different function. You can think of these as sort of passing the collected impulse. These collect the photons. These sort the photons in terms of opposite colors, which is bipolar pairs of opposite colors, that's opponent process theory, and then the ganglion cells pass this signal onward. So last time we talked about the pupil of the eye being like the aperture in a camera. It's sort of like the hole where incoming light gets through, it can widen, it can get smaller. So image A shows a something pupil, whereas image B shows a something else pupil. So are the pupils constructed, dilated, constricted, diluted, dilated, constricted, constructed, dilated, or constricted and dilated? got almost everybody. So I'm going to close this off. And yes, the, the top pupil A is constricted. It's getting smaller, letting less light in, while the pupil pictured in B is dilated. It's bigger. It's letting more light in. This is about the size of the dilated pupil is about 8 millimeters. The size of a constricted pupil is about 2 millimeters. 
So E is, is the correct answer for this. And this has uh, an important function with when you're in a really, you know, if you have somebody taking a flash picture and they take it really close to you, your pupil um, con contracts, constricts, basically, because it's being assaulted by uh, too many photons at once. It's getting saturated. So that's why you s you'll see this sort of like little dark spots. As well, when you go to the eye doctor, your dilated pupil, that happens because of the drops that they put in to see better into your eye. And drugs can also give this kind of an effect. So in this diagram, we said the lens can essentially be adaptive. It's adaptive optics. And it can become thicker, it can become elongated, and so you can see near or far differently. Which do you think of these diagrams represents nearsightedness? So you can only see what's very close to you or farsightedness, that you see things at a distance a lot better. Okay, so is it, which image depicts the lens of problems with the shape of the lens can cause near or farsightedness? Image something depicts the lens of someone who is nearsighted, while the other image depicts the lens of a far-sighted person. A, B, or C. So the answer is, stop this, okay. the answer is uh, B and C, because what's happening here is remember that the retina of the eye, if we were talking about a camera, the retina in the eye is like the film in the camera, an image, a virtual image is projected onto the retina, therefore if you have normal vision, basically you know 20-20 vision, you have light rays coming into the eye, going through the lens, and being projected to a single spot in focus on the back, well, on the retina itself. So as you can see, this axis is where the retinas are. So this is normal vision with the image focus being on the retina squarely. This is uh, nearsighted vision, which the, with the image is actually in front of the retina slightly. And this is far-sighted vision with the image kind of at the very back behind the retina. And you can actually see this a little bit better in the next diagram, which has the proper terminology for each of those conditions. So, anatropia is normal vision. Myopia is nearsightedness which is what I'm wearing these glasses for. I wear them to read the screen a little bit better. You can't see uh, distance. 
and hyperopia is seeing farsightedness, seeing distance uh, better. Whoops, that was not supposed to be there. Okay, sorry about that. So, there we go. Next one. Um, the muscles which largely distort the lens shape are known as which? Which muscles actually control that motion, elongation, or the contraction of the lens? Is it the ciliary muscles, the trapezius muscles? the luteal muscles, the foveal muscles, or the mitochondrial muscles? Okay, a few more moments. Shut this off now. So yes, the, the, the ciliary muscles A are the muscles which, dis, which make the lens adaptive. Remember, the lens in a camera will typically move. It'll move distant, different, different, sometimes move distances. And you can change the aperture to put in more light or less light. So the same thing happens, but the lens doesn't move in the eye. It just gets distorted. So we're going to have, you know, we're doing a review, a speed review, kind of as, as eye clicker questions. So know what cells are present within the fovea region of the retina. Is it no chromatic cells that are present there? No cone cells? No rod cells or no ganglion cells? Okay. So I will close this off now. And uh, there are no rod cells in the fovea region of the retina. If you remember, the fovea region is where the cones are very, very highly concentrated. That gives you this sharp vision, and vision, good vision acuity in this region. Okay, we're almost done the questions. But since I was just talking about vision acuity, vision acuity is a term which refers to what? To the intensity of an image, the hue of an image or color of an image, the sharpness of an image, or the concavity of the lens in the eye.
Okay, I'll give it a few more seconds. Gonna close that off. And as usual, majority rules, it is the sharpness of an image, your vision acuity. Remember we said that that's like a, a resolution, a measure of resolution of the image that you're looking at. And this part of the eye functions to maintain the eye's shape and rigidity. Think of what it's made of, if you're going to get the uh, correct part here. So is it the aqueous humor, the lens, the cornea, the sclera, or the iris? Okay, I'm closing this off. Wow, okay, so actually it is not the aqueous humor really. I mean, it, that aqueous humor has a relation to shape, but it is the D, the sclera. Remember that sclera are the whites of the eyes, and they're made up largely of collagens. Collagens maintain that rigidity. The sclera, if you think of it as the external layer, it has a lot of pressure coming onto it, and that maintains the shape, the round shape of the eyeball. Whereas the aqueous humor, if you remember, that is the watery liquid that's con contained between the cornea, the front transparent part of your eye, and the iris. So that's only a very small part, so it doesn't give you that round spherical shape. So sclera is what keeps the structure of the eye. All right, so that's it for questions for a little bit. Move this to the side. Last time, uh, and for those of you who stayed for the video last time, or even if you didn't stay, you may have watched it on your own at home, but we did talk about a little bit about vision in humans versus vision in different animals. And most vertebrates have uh, two or more cone cells. We have three, some like a chicken and a salamander and some kinds of fish have four different kinds of cone cells. Um, some, like mammals, like um, a rodent, a, a rat, or a mouse has two cone cells. Cats have two cone cells. And with the evolution of the eye, we've, our eye has evolved in such a way as to, you know, make our daily living activities the, the best, the most feasible. We don't really hunt. And we don't live nocturnally. We certainly don't hunt nocturnally uh, in the regular course of a day. Cats who do that have adapted evolutionary um, advantages 
They have, as you can see, this is a picture of two cats from the online uh, professor of this course, uh, who is Professor Paulin. These are her two cats with showing this uh, oh, the trapetum lucidum. It's still too early in the morning for you to pronounce things properly. Sorry. It's, it's kind of interesting to look at the different adaptations in animals. Last time we also talked about a kind of a fish. There was a four-eyed fish that basically had adapted its eyes to see both above the water and underneath the water for predatory, for advantage of finding food and gu being guarded from predators as well. Other animals that have adapted are animals like eagles. We're going from cats to birds, but eagles actually have over four times as many rods and cones as humans do. That's why people say you're eagle-eyed, you have great vision. Well, the eagle's vision system has evolved to allow them to see both sharply and precisely when they are hunting from the air. So there's four times as many cones and, <coughs> and rods, and uh, the daytime images, that's when they hunt, basically, are extra visceral to pick out um, things at far away distances or things from far heights, usually small sort of things at, sm at far heights. So that brings us to humans. With human vision, we still don't fully understand. I mean, the evolutionary process is such that uh, most of our activities would be taken into account. With human beings, it turns out with our red, green, and blue cones, when you think about how many we have of each, and then you weight that with the wavelength peak, the spectrum of where all of them peak that are most sensitive to, we can kind of come up with an average curve that tells us where the human eye is most sensitive, which color it's most sensitive to. And you can see this peak is in the green and yellow wavelength. And just to kind of think about, that's also the spectral peak of sunlight, of our sun. So we've evolved to basically be sensitive to daylight activities to the light that our star, the sun, gives off. And to just remind you of how we would look at light from a celestial object like the sun or the star, we have the black body diagram. Remember, a black body is a theoretical object that absorbs already uh, incident radiation upon it. So this is, and this, this is visible light, and this is the sun's intensity curve, and it peaks roughly in the same wavelengths that the human eye has evolved to. So if you were to go to another planet, uh, there is a course, a Nats course, which is Life Beyond Earth, where we actually talk about possible evolutions of life forms on other planets. You would expect that maybe in, say, a, a planet orbiting a red dwarf star, you'd have these creatures which pretty much function in low light conditions. So maybe they won't even have cones. Maybe their vision will be mainly rods. 
and mainly monochromatic. It's kind of interesting to think about. Okay, we're back to questions. I promise not too many more, but uh, for the sake of review, the which part provides most of the blood to the eye? Retina, the aqueous humor, the vitreous humor, optic nerve, or the choroid. Okay, I'll give everybody a couple more seconds. Turning it off now. So which provides most of the blood to the eye? It's actually that layer sort of behind the retina. It's E, the choroid, or the choroid layer. So optic nerve is a good guess. You know, you think about nerves, you think about sort of passageways and blood vessels, so you must think sort of blood. But it actually is this choroid area that provides nourishment and about 95% of blood to your eye. We talked as well about rods and cones. We said that rods are really functional in dim lighting conditions, whereas cones function in the daytime and they allow us to see color. And if you remember, one of the diagrams I showed was almost like a circuit diagram that showed how the signals from the incoming photons are combined by rods and cones and what channels they take to sort of go to the brain. So there was one kind of cell which hooked a bunch of them up together and sent one signal for multiple photons and there was another cell that had one sort of signal per cell per photon. Do you remember which that is? So rods have a something photon response, whereas cone, cones have a something photon response. Close this off. In three, two, one. So rods have a D, correct? Multiple photon response, whereas cones have a single photon response. And all that means is just that uh, the rods, if you have sort of like a signal line to the brain, you can have four rods connected to basically one line. So it's a summation of all the photons collected between those rods, 
whereas the cone cells, I'm going to draw it as kind of a cone, whereas the cone cells, any signal they receive, any photon they see, receive, has its own unique direct line to the brain. And that will get important later on in the lecture today when we talk about the opponent process and how our brain interprets color. Because remember, it's not just the wavelength of the light coming in, but it's the brain's interpretation process that gives us that perception of color. There is a really, really good uh, website on vision, which explains everything in a lot of detail, and it has a, some good demonstrations and examples. It's actually a, a York uh, website, so I would encourage you to take a look at this website. It even it has some optical illusions, a lot of interesting stuff. So let's get back to this diagram now. And we're about to talk about the opponent process. So remember, we've got incoming light. We've got these three layers. We've got the ganglion cells, the nerve cells, the bipolar cells, and then the rods and the cones. Let's look at what's going on and how the signal is essentially summed up over all of these lines sent to the brain, and then what happens in the brain when the signal is received. Okay. So this is a rather busy slide, but hopefully by the end of the explanation, it will make a lot of sense. We've said already that there are two parts to vision, the eye and the brain. So with respect to your eye, you have incoming photons falling on cones. The cones send that individual signal to a ganglion cell, like a nerve cell, which then transmits that to the optic nerve. The optic nerve passes along the signal from each of the cones to the brain. And then what happens is the opponent process. So when the brain receives that signal, kind of interesting because, again, it's a tricolor, tri-process. It's not a tricolor. It's actually four colors that the brain breaks it down into. So the brain receives the blue, green, or red, short, medium, or long wavelength signal, and then sort of categorize it, categorizes it in one of three channels. And the channels are based on opposite colors. So remember we had opponent or complementary colors. Blue, the complementary color of blue would be yellow, and the complementary color of green would be red. So these are the three channels that I'm going to call them. This is essentially like a circuit. The signal comes in and goes to each of these three channels. This is the green-red channel, the blue-yellow channel, and the light-dark or luminance, the black-white channel. Well, that's nice, but let, let's see how that actually works in more detail. What's happening when an incoming photon strikes the retina? You have something called a receptive field. It's a field. Uh, it's like a, your retina is like a, a light detector. So the photon, in this specific case, let's say it's coming in the fovea region. This area is the fovea region where all the cones are concentrated. A photon strikes. Uh, a receptive sort of area, 
in any of those. I mean, photons are coming in in all directions at all angles. So the circles denote receptive fields of in your retina, where the cones are actually getting photons, collecting photons. Please note this is absolutely not to scale. Uh, the actual receptive fields that basically neurologists have found that your eye is broken into are much, much, much smaller than this. They don't span this much of an area. So we have this receptive field idea. The receptive fields then transduce the signal, that photon, incoming photon signal. And when I say transduction, all I mean is kind of like a conversion. If you think about a, trans, uh, a transducer or like a power align with a, with a pole, it's conver converting different voltages. So transduction is just conversion to a unit that the brain can understand. So once we have the receptive field, the photon signal is transduced from being light itself to being a sensory signal, which is then passed on to the brain by the ganglion cell via the optic nerve. Now with receptive cells, uh, through many years of experimentation, what's found that there are certain patterns exist. In the retina, all the receptive cells act similarly, and they act based on this opponent idea. So the opponent idea is based on a very simple concept. Look at this diagram. It's red on one end and green on the other, right? Opposite colors. So in the color wheel, we had like blue, violet, analogous colors next to each other. But nobody talks about a reddish green, right? That would be in the middle of this, of this gradient here. So there's, there's not like a reddish or reddy green, and there's not really a yellowy blue. You just don't see those things. It's almost like the colors cancel each other out. And this is exactly the idea of the opponent process. So a physiologist um, named Ewald Herring in 1892 said, okay, well, we don't actually see a combination of complementary colors. No red, blue, no blue, green, oh, sort of green, red, no blue, yellow. And what's happening, in fact, is he posited that the brain does make this distinction. As soon as it gets that signal, the signal is then sent into a circuit. And instead of having the red, green, and blue detectors, there's four detectors, four instead of three. There's red, green, blue, and yellow, given these opposite pairs of color. Let's see exactly how that looks. In terms of studying this, people have studied this and have found that each receptive field in your eye has a consistent structure. So they kind of look like bullseyes. And it's a circle with a little circle inside of it. And there's different kinds of configurations. Just in terms of terminology, we call the inner circle the center. And we call the outer circle the surround. 
So you'll see in opponent theory that there's different configurations. It's like a, um, a binary circuit where you're combining ones and zeros on, off, different positions of this switch. Remember we're dealing with nerve signals here. So we're talking about a ganglion cell either being stimulated by a photon, which you can think of it as being excited, turning on, quite literally, or a ganglion cell being inhibited. The response of the ganglion cell is inhibited. It's not a strong response. The photon is essentially lost. So I'm gonna, it's going to be off. So the ganglion cell gets turned on or off by an incoming photon. And I'm just going to denote this as plus for on and minus for off. So if you have the photon striking the center and really exciting the ganglion cell there, we have what you call an on center. So in the other case, if we have an off center, you can see it's minus, it's an off center. And the same thing happens. It's going to be always the opposite from the center and the surround. If you have an on center, you'll have an off surround. If you have an off center, you'll have an on surround. They just work that way with opposites. So here's your off surround, and here's your on surround. Great, so we've got that dichotomy there, on and off. Let's add another layer to, of complexity to it then. There's actually four receptive field configurations that work in this opponent theory, process theory. Remember, we have a red-green channel, a blue-yellow channel, and a white-black luminance channel. So what these, in terms of color, if we're talking about those four colors, what these configurations look like is this you have, and I'm going to use the names of the cones as short, medium, long, so short is blue, medium is green, and L, long, is red. So as one of the configurations gives you an, uh, an L center and an M surround. Not surprisingly, the opposite configuration gives you a green center, so an M center and an L surround. And now we have to do the blue and, and uh, yellow pairs. So we have a blue center, S center, with a yellow surround. What is this, the L plus S? Well, remember our cone cells only receive in red, green, and blue. So when we think about colors, we think about what makes yellow, which colors make yellow. green and red. So we have, well, why do I have the long and short? Do I have that correctly? Okay, so the blue and the red. Hmm, I think I mislabeled it. In any case, it's going to be a combination. I will correct that on the slides when I post them. It's going to be a combination Yellow is going to be a combination of two of the cone channels. So apologies for, for that. So here are our four receptive field configurations. So what now? Yeah, we already have that. 
green, yellow. So remember, though, when we talked about wavelengths, we had that diagram with the rods and cones um, and the diagram showing the cone wavelength peak, which gave us our red, yellow, and blue. It was kind of like this, and then too close together. This would be your blue, your green, and your red. But recall they're not exactly blue, green, and red. If we actually look at that color with the wavelength where it peaks, it's more like blue-violet, yellow-green, and green. So this is why, I'm sorry I didn't make a mistake here, but this is why the red is the L plus S. It's just those particular wavelengths combined to give you the red. And the yellow is the L plus M. So L, green, plus red. And red is going to be this kind of red plus blue-violet. It's just a function of the fact that the wavelength peaks that we call red, green, blue aren't quite red, green, blue. So we have to add them a little bit. With opponent process theory, this is uh, Ewald Herring who proposed it. And he essentially gave us a, a map, a circuit diagram of how the brain interprets color. So coming with each of those cones, which have a single photon response, sort of one output channel for each cone, what happens is they all combine in different combinations in opponent processes with those on centers, off centers, um, L plus M, L plus S cones, etc. This is happening in the retinal ganglion cells. So now, hopefully, this makes a little bit more sense. In a blue photon's case, the blue signal travels, and the blue sort of circuit pipeline goes to be sorted out by the red-green channel and the blue-yellow channel, but not this luminance channel. The other two, the green and the red, are sort of sorted by each opponent pair, all three of them. Okay. So to remember, when you remember the big picture of all of this, going through it can get a little bit tedious when you go into the little configurations. But the key point here is people like Helmholtz and Thomas Young, the physicists who basically discovered the workings of the eye, they said, no, there's three wavelengths. The eye just sees it three wavelengths. And they were fighting the trichromat people, tricolor vision people, were fighting with Ewald uh, Herring and his sort of group of people who said, no, there's something else going on. That's not enough to explain it. Red, green, blue only is not enough to explain how humans see differences in colors because remember, we can't perceive a color plus its complement. It cancels each other's out. There's got to be something else going on. So the debate raged for a very long time until they made one simple realization. So instead of a system with three unique colors or there's a system with four unique colors, the realization was, I'll come back to this in a second, um, that both are right. Both theories are right. 
how can that be? How can two theories be right? Well, remember we said there's two parts to color perception. One part is the eye, and one part is the brain. So the tricolor theory of Young and Helmholtz, that applies to your eyes, to the hardware, to the light detectors. Whereas Herring's theory, the opponent process theory, is the step after your eyes receive the light. That applies to what's going on in your brain. So they both work through a pipeline, basically. You've got tricolor theory first, and then the opponent process afterward. Okay. So this is, um, I believe he's a, an ophthalmologist. C. Blackwell does these really, really great videos. I mean, they're a little bit dry, but they're really, really excellent. They explain things extremely simply, because this is kind of a confusing concept. So I'm going to play you um, five minutes of this video, and I'd encourage you as well to check out the whole longer video. He has a whole series on color vision, which is really, really excellent, if anything is sort of confusing you. Color information that started in the retina is divided into three separate channels. One channel is for luminance, black versus white. Another channel is for blue versus yellow, and the third is for green versus red. Here are all three color axes. Any color can be specified by a location in this opponent color space. Here is how each of the channels works. The channel for luminance receives its input from red and green cones. That determines the black versus white range. In the blue-yellow color channel, the blue input is from the blue cone, of course. But where is the yellow cone? Yellow, you may remember, comes from the combination of red plus green. So, by the relative input of the cones into the blue-yellow channel, the incoming light is judged to be either bluer or yellower. The red-green color channel also gets input from all three cones. In this channel, the incoming light is judged to be either redder or greener. So here is the whole circuit, which yields the opponent color channel. Now let's give you a different view, and then we will, we will return to the circuit. Here is another way of looking at the result of opponent color response. This is the blue versus yellow channel. Below 500 nanometers, the blue side dominates. Above 500 nanometers, yellow dominates. The red versus green channel looks like this, with red dominating at each end and green in the middle. When you put the opponent channel functions together, here is the result. Let's take a look at a specific example. Take blue at 450 nanometers. The red channel has input, as does the blue channel. The sum of the two inputs is this specific blue. As a second example, we take yellow at 580 nanometers. Note at this point the green and red have cancelled each other. Green-red input is at zero or neutral, leaving yellow from the blue-yellow channel. Every color is perceived through a balance between these two channels. Now let's see if we can put all this together. Starting with the cone, Input into the ganglion cells makes the first separation into blue-yellow and red-green orientation. 
These are the cone opponent channels. When this was first discovered, it seemed that this would be the mechanism for color opponency. Unfortunately, it's not that easy. Experiments show this output does not match our final color experience. There's another step in color processing that occurs in the cortex that yields color results that do match our perceptions. What does this mean, match our perceptions? If color processing was only by the three cones, this is approximately what the spectrum would look like. After cone-opponent processing, this is what arrives at the lateral geniculate nucleus. Most of the colors are there, but they are not in quite the right places. After the final stage of processing, the colors end up in the places we are accustomed to seeing. We can't leave opponent colors without specifically recognizing the unique hues. For a long time, it has been recognized there are four psychologically elementary colors blue, green, yellow, and red. They are unique in that they are pure, not seen as combinations of other colors. In theory, these colors occur where one channel is at its neutral point, leaving the other color channel unopposed. A minute ago, we identified a spot where red and green cancel. That left yellow unopposed. That is the site of unique yellow at 580 nanometers. Red and green also cancel at a second spot. This leaves blue unopposed. In other words, this is the site of unique blue at about 475 nanometers. Likewise, there is a spot where blue and yellow cancel. This is the site of unique green, about 500 nanometers. I've taken these numbers from the original Jameson and Herbert's paper. Later research has shown quite a bit of variation between people in the location of the unique hues. For your amusement, you might notice these colors turn up in lots of places. Okay, and then he's going to do the, the famous flag example of opponent processing that I showed you last time. So do take a look at that at your uh, leisure, and we're going to take a little break now. It's 9.43, so I'll see you back at, uh, at 10 a.m. and we'll talk about, resume with talking about color blindness. Yeah. Okay, so that's, uh, that's a point, process theory in a nutshell in, uh, in quite a bit of detail, but it is interesting. Just always remember the key for color perception is it's two things, eyes and brain. Eyes are tricolor theory. Brain is opponent process theory. So now let's talk a little bit more about the actual perception of color and the notion of color blindness. So we talk about color blindness, but it's actually not, it's usually not blindness. It's, it's very, very rare that you see no color whatsoever. So last time we showed some different animals and there was in one video it showed what a dog might see, because dog sees like in blues and yellow. So the dog was basically seeing two colors and then a bunch of grays. Color blindness works like that. The most common form of color blindness is when you are missing or have damaged one 
set of cones. The other form of colorblindness, which is truly colorblindness, which is monochromatic, when you see only in grays, is extremely rare. It's about one in a hundred thousand people in the population who experience that. And uh, it tends to be inherited, it's hereditary, it comes from both parents um, actually having that deficiency. So colorblindness, we all know what we're talking about by colorblindness, but it would be less accurate. We could call it color deficiency more accurately. So uh, let's go on with color deficiencies for now then. So the color vision, they all, pretty much all the disorders that you have, and you can test yourself for this, and there are ways to test it, and I'll sort of get into that in a moment. But all of them have some form of color vision. Uh, it's just a different kind of vision. But it's hard for us to really tell what that vision might look like because each person is very different. Even the sort of sensitivity peaks of the rods and cones in each person is slightly different. So we can't really, it's very hard to say this person sees like this in absolutes. Color blindness, we said it's already, should be called colored vision deficiency. So what are the causes of of uh, color deficiencies, vision deficiencies. Essentially, there's two causes. It can be either inherited, you're born with it, or it can be acquired. So if it's acquired, uh, what will happen is there's either damage to the retina or there's damage to the optic nerve. Your eyes may not themselves be damaged, but the optic nerve is. Or there's damage to the centers of the brain that does the opponent processing that understands how we see color. So it's kind of interesting, not color blindness, but with blindness. Um, I had a brother who was born um, cerebral palsied and very handicapped. Um, he passed away last, a couple of months ago, but he had, he was born blind. And they didn't actually realize it when he was born. So we noticed, my parents and I would notice that he wasn't responding at all to any kind of visual stimulus. And what had happened was, because of the way he was born with excess fluid in the skull, in the head, um, the fluid had kind of crushed the optic nerve. So the eyes may have worked perfectly, but the optic nerve signal was blocked, resulting in blindness, uh, although there was a little bit of light perception. So this is, this is uh, some of the ways. Your eyes may be just totally fine, but your brain isn't making the connection. Uh, in terms of another way to quit, everybody, as you age, your vision typically will get a little bit worse. Cells die, cells get damaged. So aging is a normal one. You can also have sort of eye diseases, which will give you this color vision deficiency. Or you can have sometimes side effects of medications may cause color deficiencies. In terms of the inherited ones, those are inherited from one or both parents. Uh, typically, the deficiencies are in the visual processes in the brain. So in total, there's a reason why most men um, Men and women have different sort of rates of color blindness. Men commonly tend to be more color blind uh, in the red-green 
um, range than women in general because it has to do with the chromosomes. The X chromosome actually has a part of it that distinguishes between the red and the green. So women have double X, two XX chromosomes. Men have XY chromosomes. So the women tend to be able to distinguish this better. So in total, about 8% of males, so one in about 12 uh, men will have colored, some sort of color deficiency. And it's usually the red-green one, which isn't exactly great for traffic, but that's the case. Um, and about 0.5% of females, or one in 200, experience some kind of color deficiency. It's also kind of interesting and worth noting that, remember we, we call ourselves trichromats. We see in three colors. In some cases, and it's been found and studied, there are some uh, women who claim to be tetrachromats, or four color visions, that they can distinguish between more subtle hues in color. They don't actually have four cones, but Sometimes in women, the color sensitivity is higher. So instead of a color deficiency, they have a color, I don't know what you call it, supersensitivity, hypersensitivity. This is contested a little bit, but it's there. It's in the research. And if you look it up, you can see a number of, uh, of studies that has been, have been done on this increased color perception in women. So let's talk about the types of color deficiencies. Last time I showed you a bit of a chart that had gradients of how somebody would see with the continuous spectrum of all the rainbow colors with just the spectrum with one color removed and other colors removed. So we'll talk about that today, what the actual names for those are. And the main one that almost everybody has with a color deficiency is called dichromacy. And all that means is that uh, we the people who have dichromatic vision, one of the cone types is either missing or damaged. So they see essentially with two types of cones. Which type that is varies from person to person, but basically one type of cone isn't functioning or is completely absent. And so you're essentially seeing in uh, muted hues of a number of colors and some grays, a lot of grays. The other, and extremely the true color blindness, the really, really rare color blindness, is called monochromacy. So you actually see in monochrome, as, as in watching sort of an old television set, you see in shades of gray, in grayscale. And again, this is really, really, really rare. Uh, you will see in black, gray, white you'd see a lot of light contrast. So in terms of properties of color, if you have this deficiency, value becomes very important. How light, how white, or how black something is, is really important to a monochromat. Um, but fortunately, it is rare and is inherited from actually both parents, not just one, it has to be both. In terms of other deficiencies, um, they can also occur essentially where the person has the normal three cones, but 
the amounts in which they have those cones vary. So remember we said which one is, was the most plentiful cone in terms of population? Red, right, yeah. So red was like 66%, green was 31%, blue was 6%. So the color perception, the color vision could change if you were one of those rare individuals who had, let's say, more blue cones than usual or more green cones or more, well, you could have more red cones, but in different relative amounts. So your vision would be biased toward certain wavelengths and your hues would be shifted. So this is again, that, that is just another form of de deficiencies. Let's go back to talking about uh, the dichromatic deficiencies, which is when you're missing or have one set of cones damaged. Um, as I've said before, it was more common in males, and this is due to the, the chromosomes that delineate the male-female male divide. The X chromosome um, regulates the red-green, has a chemical in it, basically, that regulates the distinction of red and green. So proper functions of those red and green cone cells are essentially governed by the X uh, chromosomes and women will have always XX chromosome type and men will have XY so sometimes they miss out of having that extra control and delineation. Uh, types of dichromats, we have tri-dichromats, no we don't, we just have three types of, of, uh, of dichromaticity obviously because we have three different kinds of cones. So you can be missing one of the following. If you're missing the red cone, this is known as protonopia. So those are the long wavelength red cones. When you're missing the green cones, that's known as deuteranopia. So those are the medium wavelength cones. And finally, when you're missing the blue cones, which you have in fewest numbers anyway, you have something called tritonopia. Tritonopia, again, is rare. It's quite rare, and it's like 1% of people. And um, these two tend to be the more common types of dichromatic color deficiency. If you go back to last week's slides, you will see that picture where I have the full continuous spectrum, and then it will list protonopia, deuteranopia, and tritonopia, and show you a sample gradient of how people with each of those conditions may see our best educated guess. Remember, it will be different for each person. So that begs the question, then, how do we know our vision is normal? What's normal and what does normal vision actually look like? And um, this was sort of studied and, and tested for a long time. Um, you can only be speaking about a color deficiency in how you perceive, and you really have no way of knowing what somebody else is perceiving. So in order to get an objective measurement, there is this system which has been developed 
Do you remember this particular diagram? In one of the very first lectures, we talked about color wheels and different kinds of color systems. And I showed you one system that's kind of like a color wheel that has spokes around the outside and the central axis of light and dark. That was the Munsell color system. And this particular sort of categorization of colors is based on the Munsell system with an actual hardware apparatus that tests people's colors of different hues. In daylight, very important, daylight illumination, because we don't see color in the dark, because the rods take over, and no color vision occurs in those cases. So this is actually called the Farnsworth Munsell 100 Hue Test. And if you would like a true scientific test of whether you are colorblind or have a, some sort of a color deficiency, this is, this is the way to, to do it. A uh, word about YouTube videos. There's lots of YouTube videos. If you, if you look them up for color blindness, there are a ton of them that claim to test color blindness. Uh, some of them are pretty good, but a lot of them are not. So if a YouTube video like, just tells you that you're color blind, don't necessarily trust that. There's, there's other ways to find out, but there's some interesting things to look at. But the true way, if you had a, an issue and you were trying to figure this out, would be this Farnsworth Munsell 100 Hue system. The other easy way that I think probably almost all of us have seen is the Ishihara test. Um, this is a psychological test by a perception scientist um, to take a look at the red and the green and how you see in different parts. So the Ishihara test is kind of like a mosaic. When you have like a, a mosaic stones in the floor, it, it looks like a mosaic of different colored beads. And when you look at the beads, you can kind of make out a number in a slightly different hue. And that, because the hues are kind of close together and the beads have spacing between them, that can tell you whether you have the ability to distinguish between colors. So let's look at an example. So if you, if you can see the number in the following diagrams, that means your vision is typically what we would call normal in terms of color vision. If you cannot see the, the numbers, then you probably have some sort of color deficiency. So here's the first one. So the, the little beads and uh, if you can see a number in there, the correct number is 29 right here. And if you have a color deficiency, you will not see anything. It'll look like a bunch of blobs, sort of. Uh, the same thing with this. You know, these are hues of green and reds. These are slightly different hues of reds and greens as well, with more yellow in it, more orange in it. The correct number in this case is 8. And again, if you have a deficiency, <coughs> you'll see no pattern in this. And you can see many of these examples online. Ishihara test has all ranges, and uh, some of them are harder than others. But that will give you a pretty good measure for now. I'm just curious, because I'm always then, uh, in terms of doing a question, I'm just curious how many, or if anybody, 
had trouble distinguishing it, if it was difficult. Okay, so let's see. So did you easily distinguish the numbers? Did you find it hard, but finally saw them, or did you just not see them at all? So I'm going to stop this in a few more seconds. Well, that's good. Um, most of you saw it, not that it's a correct answer, but most of you uh, saw it easily. Uh, and that's fairly typical of, I mean, we don't have a great, uh, huge population sample here. We have about a hundred and, according to the attendance, about a hundred and fifty people, so most of you don't have any color deficiencies, or none that we can detect by the Ishihara test in any way. But that doesn't help us to actually understand what color deficient vision would be like, and why would we want to understand it? Well, we would want to understand it to assist people with the vision deficiency to say, uh, design better websites, or design color schemes, or design even simple things like traffic lights that people will not be confused about. So, but it's impossible to really know how each person sees, and when we do make a guess, it really is a guess. It's a best guess estimate on what images may look like to them. Um, so you can take a look here. This particular, it didn't quite work for me because I think the Java on my computer was not updated or something, but this is a, a, an applet, it's a Java program, and you can look at a picture on the left and see what a normal person would see, and you can choose which kind of color deficiency you have and see what a color deficient person might on the right. It's, it's a cute thing to look at. Um, in terms of further references, uh, take a look at all of these. The handprint site, I haven't specifically mentioned this in class yet, but if you go to the Moodle page and you take a look at the external resources, I have about five or six resources there. One is the David Briggs site, which is Dimensions of Color, which I had sent out some assist, uh, additional reading from, which is a really excellent site. Uh, the other one is this handprint site, which is a nice site as a reference for artists and painters. Um, so I would, again, suggest that you look at the handprint site. And I also just added, a couple, well, a little while ago, I added um, an interesting site with a bunch of optical illusions and explanations of those optical illusions. Okay. And Wikipedia, I couldn't help putting it in there because Wikipedia often does have things laid out so nicely. So let's move on now to synesthesia. And we did touch on this a little bit last time. Uh, it's synesthesia, it can be spelled with the A or without the A. But it's a neurological condition in which you have sort of intertwined or some sort of joined senses. 
So when we think of color perception, we often think of color vision. But synesthetes, who is a person who has synesthesia, can have some other sense being the dominant sense by which they perceive color. But, and they can perceive color both, say, visually, but they may see different things or they may hear different things while they're seeing the color. You kind of, it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, it's not a disorder. It's not listed, if you look at your medical manuals, it's not in the DSM-4 or anything like that. But it is just a different kind of a perception that some people have. Not that many, but some do. So let's take a look at, uh, at this. One thing to mention is it might be a nice idea to you to, to sort of have an idea of hearing colors. But if you're not born with it, typically it's not learnt behavior. It either exists or it doesn't. So it's a harmless condition. Again, it's not a disorder. It's, it is quite rare in the sense that it's only 4% of the population who are synesthetes. And to give you an illustration of what synesthesia may seem like, remember it's that joining or the cross-pollination of senses. So commonly, the most common form of synesthetes is days of the week. Days of the week may have a color to them or a different association. So each of these letters or numbers may have a specific color. So if you said to somebody, S, oh, S is purple. That's just, and it's consistent with this person. It doesn't change throughout their whole life. So this is a quick, uh, it's about four minutes or so, um, outlining the different kinds of synesthesia. He talks kind of fast. You might think you'd have to be on some kind of psychoactive street drug to see music or taste the feeling of the wind in your hair. Not the case. You could instead have synesthesia, a neurological condition in which two senses are perceived simultaneously. Synesthesia is Greek for joined perception and it can involve mixing any of our senses, sometimes even three or more of them at once, although that's more rare. Researchers have found that synesthesia is often inherited, though members of a family will sometimes have different types. Scientists at Baylor University think that they've identified a region of DNA on chromosome 16 as the culprit, at least for the most common form called colored sequence synesthesia. This is when people perceive letters or numbers or words or days of the week, whatever, as being inherently colored. Like the letter A is red and the number four is brown. And you might be thinking, yeah, that person probably just had a red A magnet on their refrigerator when they were a little kid, so they think of A's as being red. But most studies suggest that there's something funny going on with the synesthete spray. Although there's no established way to diagnose synesthesia, true synesthetes have a few things in common. One, their mixed perception of senses is involuntary. It happens without them thinking about it. Two, their condition is experienced rather than imagined. Like if I ask what color is a triangle, a synesthete would see a color, say yellow, immediately and they wouldn't have to think about it before their brain made the association. Three, uh, the sensory mix-up is durable, meaning that the associations are always the same. Bacon can't taste like Bach one day and Beethoven the next. Four, often the secondary perception of a thing will be more memorable than the primary one. So if the synesthete always associates the name Dave with the color purple, they'll usually remember the purple first, which tells them that it's Dave. And finally, number five, the perceptions may be really emotional, like 
Oh my God! The Elton John song playing in the TJ Maxx smells like gasoline. Get me out of here! Now, of course, the question is. What are these people's brains up to? One idea is that it might be a defect in the neural structure. Scientists theorize that we're born with our senses sort of all tangled up, and then over time, our brains shut down the neural bridges between our senses, so we experience them separately. But synesthetes might not be properly shutting down those bridges, making their lives a little bit trippier than everybody else's. Another theory suggests that synesthesia is caused by neurochemistry. Our neurons communicate with each other through chemicals called neurotransmitters. So it could be that synesthetes have neurotransmitters meant for one part of the brain way over in a different part. Or they could lack chemicals called inhibitors that help keep neurotransmitters in check. This would explain why a lot of synesthetes have different sensory experiences when they're really tired or really hungry, or why it happens to people on hallucinogenic drugs. And of course, because our brains are complicated places, it could also be a combination of all of these things. For now, synesthesia is yet another thing that we don't completely understand about the delicious, amazing things that are our brain. Thanks for watching this episode of SciShow. Just because I said that brains are delicious, that doesn't mean that I'm a zombie. And thank you to everyone who suggested that we do this episode on synesthesia. The reason that I didn't want to is that I didn't want to have to say synesthesia 25 times in one episode. But I think I did a pretty good job. If you have any... You have any okay, so if you have questions, you can contact it. Um, Okay, so th this is the ba basic overview of, of synesthesia. It is an extremely, extremely interesting condition. Let's look at an example. So I showed you the Ishihara test and what it might look like to somebody with uh, color deficiencies, if you go onto the website and look at the Java applet, what would something look like to somebody with synesthesia? This is a, a very common test that people do to see if you have synesthesia. It's called the pop-out test. Uh, this is, you know, black and white diagram with a bunch of number fives in here. Uh, if you are a synesthete, you should see twos jumping out at you possibly, probably in color. So for instance, if you were a synesthete, you might see something like that. They'll appear a different color and they pop out of the field within five seconds, hence the name pop-out test. Um, this is, again, not learned behavior. You can try all you want. You may be able to have some level of success, but you cannot really make your brain manufacture seeing colors, hearing colors if you don't hear them, or some similar effect. The research for synesthesia, um, I said in the video, it's not quite understood very well. What is interesting is that a lot of artists seem to have it. Um, a lot of musicians seem to have it. They talk about seeing colors of music and seeing notes. Uh, there is research being done continuously on synesthesia. It has kind of like fits and starts. Uh, but if you want to look at the synesthesia research website, there is a very nice one that will give you all kinds of examples and artworks by synesthetes who are musicians, artists, composers, etc. Here are some more resources, lots of resources today. Um, this, again, is a similar kind of site. It's not just the research, but it's a lot of art by 
synesthetes trying to show what the perception of synesthesia is like. And in that vein, this is a very, very quick video. It's like two minutes or something. But this is one person. It's kind of, I haven't seen these videos before. It's a virtual reality video, or not virtual reality. It's a panoramic video. So it's interactive. You can actually pan around the video as the person is talking. You have your normal frame, but you can pan around the whole thing. So it's interesting to take a look. This is Discovery Channel. Uh, let's, let's take a look very briefly at um, a scientist who is also an artist talking about how she sees as a synesthete. My name is Caitlin Hova. I'm a software engineer, around. neuroscientist, and a musician. I also have also synesthesia. Have synesthesia is a blending of the senses. One in 23 people have a form of it. For me, when I hear specific musical notes, I see specific colors. And these colors are much brighter at night. What you're seeing in front of me is a lot like what I see when I hear this music. Each one of these colored lights corresponds to a particular note. And the colors are always the same. I've seen these colors my whole life, but I didn't know that was unusual until I was 21 years old. It was the final music theory course for my music major. And at the end of the class, my professor mentioned that some people can physically see sounds as colors. And to me, I thought, duh. And everyone in the classroom turned to look at me. We did tests where they played notes on the piano, and I told them what color it was. And at that point, I knew I had synesthesia. Synesthesia can manifest itself in so many different ways. It can blend together vision, taste, smell, sound. It can be almost anything. But for me, it's always been about the colors and the music. Synesthesia makes my music a very visual experience. When I'm listening to a piece, it's sort of like watching a video. And I can listen to it over and over again and focus on different colors and patterns each time. Now, if you turn to face the city, you can really step into my shoes and see what I see.
sure what I would do if my synesthesia went away, but I'm sure that the world would look a lot different. That'd be an extremely interesting uh, experience, I think, if you were a synesthete. Uh, this is a, I'm not going to show this video now. This one is another one longer, but if you're interested, again, in, in the music composed by synesthetes, this is a student who um, composed, like, electronic music and also had light simulations to show what she saw. She gives a really interesting kind of example saying that she was trying to do something to get herself to sleep because a clock on the wall would tick. And every time she would, it would tick, she would see red. So she decided, well, maybe I can cancel this out with its opponent color. And so she tried to compose a musical piece that simulated green for her and used this as kind of a, a lullaby. So you can take a look when you, when you get a chance. Okay, so we're going to move on from synesthesia and start talking about color and, and psychological perception of color and sometimes the color associated with emotions. So color psychology and even color therapy is a very popular um, therapy medium. But when we go next week and the week after into talking about the chemistry of color, we'll be talking about dyes and pigments, and we'll get into art a little bit more and a little bit of archaeology. Um, but this, again, I get to show some of my favorite artworks. This is some art, um, very colorful art, of a pre-Raphaelite artist, Sir Lawrence Alma Tadema. He was sort of like, he loved the classics. He would paint a lot of ancient Roman scenes. And he tried to make everything uh, at least to his knowledge, as accurate as possible in terms of colors of clothing, etc. He actually used pigments that they may have used in the dyes of the clothing to try, to, to try and get accurate color representations. So in history, we think about color, we think about perception, we think about emotion, and we also think about a historical context of color in that the emotion that we associate with a certain color could come out of its historical context. So for instance, this is the traditional Roman flag. Um, it's, the colors aren't quite right. It's usually supposed to be a little more crimson and gold. And uh, the crimson, you know, is to project strength. Uh, they were a conquering empire. So it's strength and the gold was sort of regality. But in terms of colors in the ancient Roman and Greek world giving us ideas of how to perceive colors emotionally? Well, let's get into first how they were created chemically. Because given the expense of the chemical process used to produce certain dyes, certain different types of people could afford them. So this gives us kind of like an emotional idea, most, one of the most common colors that we talk about as having an emotional impact or representing something, you always think of purple representing royalty. 
right? Purple robes, it's majesty, it's royalty. And the reason sort of for this comes from ancient clothing and dyeing. The dye that they used to create these beautiful purple majestic robes was called a pigment called Tyrian purple. It was from Tyre in Lebanon. And it was extremely expensive uh, because it was basically crushed mollusk shells. And it took 10,000 of those shells basically to make one, one Roman toga of purple. So you can imagine that that's not affordable. Only the emperor himself, the emperor's clothes, his purple clothes could have that. Uh, similarly, with indigo, the indigo, I've made a distinction here between different dyes. And you'll see when we get into talking about chemistry and dyes, blue is a very diffi difficult pigment to reproduce. And uh, especially in ancient times, there was indigo and there was blue, and they were quite different. Um, blue was cheap because it was made of a commonly found woad plant, whereas the indigo was really, really expensive and it was imported from India. Again, saffron yellow. Unfortunately, I haven't quite shown the Tadema art with the yellow, but this is a little bit like saffron yellow. They were very uh, sort of ingenious and they used, when you buy lilies, you know, the stigma of the lilies that have the sort of pollinated part, the yellow that fall off in your hand and stain your table. So the saffron yellow dyes in Roman clothing were from, uh, the crimson sigma of saffron plant. Okay. Yellow, again, yellow is not this crimson saffron plant, not the saffron yellow, just plain old yellow was cheap because it came from, again, commonly found plants called weld plants. Green was cheap. Green was just these sort of fermented insect bodies that are found in kind of an oak tree. And uh, red, Another one, cheap, we talked about at the start of the course, I showed a picture of a Roman mummy and, uh, in the Fayum region of Egypt, and I basically showed how, what you could see in different wavelengths of light, you could, what you could see in ultraviolet, invisible, and x-ray, etc. And one of the pigments that showed up and kind of glowed was exactly this pigment, this cheap matter red, which is matter made of matter, which is a herb. Uh, crimson, on the other hand, you know, note the flag distinction, although this, this looks red, it's supposed to be crimson. Crimson was regal, it was expensive, and this was dried insect bodies. So we will get into what each pigment was, how it's made, how you mix pigments together, how you bind the color molecules, and we'll get into that next week with the chemistry. Similar thing with the ancient Egyptians. One of the things that stands out often is the ancient Egyptian blues, the lapis lazuli, the really, unfortunately most of the temples and the ruins that we have now do not retain their original paint. But at the time that they were built, they were painted in full color, not these kind of washed out ruins that you see now. And they would have been vibrant blues and greens and reds and yellows, but specifically to mention one blue pigment, it was the Egyptians who gave us our first artificial synthesized pigment, and it was called, it is called Egyptian blue. It's this beautiful 
sort of uh, blue color. And it's the oldest artificial pigment. And they had a lot of interesting inks. They were really chemists because the papyri that you find are so well preserved, the ink doesn't fade. And it was by the chemical process of how they made the inks that they made this for durability. Uh, so a lot of the time you'll find and you'll still see papyrus with like black ink, which is from carbon, and really kind of reddy crimson ink, which comes from iron oxides. And finally, this, okay, the, uh, so a, one of your class reps actually brought this to my attention, and he's not here today. Um, Kenneth was saying that in the Marvel, so Marvel is just really taking off now with all of the movies. There's a new Marvel movie pretty much every week with the superhero things. But again, in terms of popular culture, we go from the ancient to the popular based on who wore the clothing, the colors of the clothing, the colors of paintings on walls. We have this emotional perception of color. Same thing is happening here. It's an appropriation for pop culture. Um, this is a Green Lantern comic, but it's showing you all the rainbow colors and associating each of those colors with a certain emotion. So it's showing rage is red, greed is orange, and fittingly black, which is the absence of color, is death in here, and white is life. So that, that's the Marvel universe. In terms of traditional sort of psychological color theory, Color and emotions are intimately linked. Some of it has to do with physical reactions. Um, for instance, there are circulatory things that happen sometimes when you see red, your heart rate may increase. So if, you, if it's too much red, your heart rate tends to increase and you see it as an angry kind of a color. And this is sort of why we have this red as in hot perception in our culture. This is sort of like a word cloud representation of all the qualities of blue. And it's from this site, which is a nice site. It does tell you a little bit about physical effects of color on here. But as you can see, like some of the stuff you may caution. Like that's interesting. Blue is supposed to be cautioned. I, I wouldn't have thought of that. but apparently. So there's, it's, you can take a look. You can take a look at each of these things. Here's red. Um, and you may not agree with them, but it's, it's, some of it is quite subjective. Okay. This is strange. Well, prohibition, that makes sense, right? Because you say do not enter, it's a big red sign with an X. Or you do something wrong, hopefully you will not do anything wrong on the assignment. You will not get any big red X's. But not usually a good thing. And here's purple. Uh, and majesty should be in there somewhere that we talked about um, royalty. Well, wealth is the closest one to it. So this just kind of popped out of the top of my mind, like how the things that I would most commonly relate to different colors. So again, the human perception, remember we have in that color wheel, in Itten's color wheel, we have warm colors and cool colors. So it's split down the middle. And the warm colors are like the reds and the yellows, and the cool colors are the blues and the purples. 
so this is kind of a list just of off the top of my head things and you can just compare this to your impressions of the color see if you actually agree with it and see how common these perceptions are amongst all of us uh, and another nice site is color and human behavior site this again also has some physical effects of color what happens when you see green let's say and actually green is supposed to be a healing kind of a calming color because green taxes the rods less when the green light is is kind of put is coming into your eye the number of green cones the green cones have to sort of strain less to receive them so this is a physical process that actually gives us a green kind of calming effect marketing if you're into marketing or if you're interested even in just designing a nice website to sort of get a message across there are traditional sort of brand colors and you see this all the time I mean Starbucks uses green and white um, a lot of superhero things use those triadic color schemes red yellow and white are often for strength um, you can take a look and look at all of the associations typically used here and then finally we're going to end on kind of a funny note I thought this video was kind of funny but it gives you all of these ideas and uh, here is pop color psychology for a Friday morning You see them every single day, when you go to the store, when you turn the TV on. But the real question is, do you understand it? What I'm talking about is the colors and the psychology behind them. All of the biggest brands in the world pay people millions of dollars to figure out how they can get customers to do what they want. Because at the end of the day, small changes can result in huge sales. From the moment you open your eyes in the morning, your brain is flooded with over 7 million colors. Believe it or not, some colors can even give you a headache. Once you understand the psychology behind colors, you'll be better equipped to take on the world. With an understanding of the basic colors, you can become a better marketer and make more sales. You can use I make the power no claims. This is a disclaimer. People and make he'll, he'll tell you that you can basically of persuade everybody and learn the world. can even help so you read another person's personality just by looking at the color of their car. Although we see the world in 7 million different colors, most people don't have the slightest clue how colors affect their mood and purchasing decisions. By wearing certain colors, you can make people feel a certain way, which could help you succeed in a variety of different situations. For example, imagine you have an interview tomorrow, and you really want the job, but there is a long list of applicants before and after your interview. Now, the color blue is associated with loyalty and trust, so the simple act of wearing blue to the interview will make the hiring manager unconsciously trust you more. Imagine you have a major business deal coming up or some other important event. By wearing blue, you'll seem more trustworthy and the business deal is more likely to turn out in your favor. This is just one example of what one color can do for you. Another major color is black and although it might not seem very exciting, it has powerful psychological effects on the observer. The psychology behind the color black 
says that it reflects power and authority, but it could also make you appear to be sinister or evil. If you're trying to attract girls who want to be with an authoritative man, then don't forget to customize your wardrobe with black clothes. Black also has slimming effects, and it works wonders for people who are overweight and need to look slimmer for a special event. Do me a favor and think about some of the biggest brands you know and see every day. There is a good chance that many of these companies include the color red in their logo. The psychology behind the color red shows it to reflect strength, power, and energy. Red is a very eye-catching color, which is why you'll notice that many sports cars are painted this color. By wearing bright red clothing, you can attract attention to yourself, and when people look at this color, it causes their heart rate and breathing to speed up. In fact, red is so stimulating that adding too much of it to your outfit can actually cause irritation in an observer. In fact, red is so stimulating that adding too much of it to your outfit can irritate an observer. If you're not convinced, just ask the MMA fighter who, in one study, wore red to make himself seem as more of a threat to the other fighter. When processed through the retina and into usable brain signals, our subconscious mind associates the color red with danger. The next time you are sitting in your car at a red light or stop sign, ask yourself why these traffic controls feature the color red. Red can also make you appear more attractive to women but it might also make you seem dangerous at the same time. Now, blue is another major Right, so BJ wasn't here earlier. BJ is your class rep, uh, and she is the lady who kindly arranged uh, color session, sorry, study sessions for you, and let me just bring that slide up for two seconds and let uh, let BJ tell you a little bit about that. Thank you. Hi guys. Um, so as you can see up there, I have two study sessions. Section session. Ah, session. Uh, se is it sections or sessions? I think it's sessions for next week. So I have one on Monday. Unfortunately, I could only get morning, like between 12.30 and 1. Now, if you can make it to those, that would be very appreciated, and it would be nice. If not, I can hang out by myself, so no worries. Um, if you do make it, could you tell me, please, if those time work or you want it earlier or later? Because that can work for my schedule. So I only have classes in the morning, and then I don't have anything to do for the rest of the day. So if any of those times do not work or if you want it at a, a later time or earlier time let me know and I will get in touch with Kenneth. He couldn't be here today. He's not. Yeah. And uh, right now he's a bit busy so all of this is not going to be at any of this um, study groups. Okay? Any questions please email me. I'll try to respond as quickly as possible and not within seven days. I really apologize Gabriella if you're in here. Uh, so I will try to respond as quickly as possible, okay? Thank you. Great. Thanks, BJ. Okay, so you can email, BJ's email is on the, uh, is on the website in the main section. Okay, so I'll go back to this video about telling you how to attract women and wear slimming colors.
color, and it's the main color for my channel logo. The psychology behind the color blue makes us feel relaxed and calmer, but when overused, it can make you feel depressed. Once you realize that blue signals trust and loyalty, it should be easy to understand why it's the main color for my channel logo. Many of the top brands in the world use the color white because it reflects purity and innocence. Why do you think a wife wears a white dress at the wedding? Our subconscious mind tends to associate white with good and black with evil. In fact, in Chinese philosophy, the yin and yang symbol is a great example of white as good and black as evil. If you have ever visited a website that uses green as the primary color scheme, think about how it made you feel. The psychology behind green is relaxing and it can help make your vision clearer. In fact, the walls of many factories are painted green for this purpose. The color green can have powerful effects on an observer and make him feel relaxed and calm. The next time you take a walk with nature and see all of the towering green trees above your head and the meadows of green grass beneath your feet, you'll know exactly why you feel relaxed and calm. Yellow is another major color and you should be able to think of a few major brands that use this color in their logo. The psychology behind yellow reveals it as an irritating color and I kid you not, many fast food restaurants paint their walls yellow to dissuade customers from staying too long. Like red, yellow is also a flashy color and it can increase the heart rate and metabolism of the viewer. Yellow also has an effect on your mood and it tends to stir up feelings of optimism in the observer. The color purple is actually a mixture of blue and red and it causes people to feel calm and powerful. If you want to be associated with authority, wealth, and elegance, add purple to your outfit. Like the color white, pink reflects kindness and innocence. If you want to be viewed as helpful, add some pink to your outfit. So now that you understand the major colors and the psychology behind them, you should know how this knowledge can be used to read another person's personality. Once you've studied psychology long enough, you'll start to realize that the colors surrounding a person can directly or indirectly tell you a lot about his personality. The secret is paying attention to the cars, clothes, and gadgets that he owns. Imagine you walk into a gym and see 15 different people all going about their business and trying to get stronger and healthier. Without this knowledge, you would never consider the colors of their iPods, wristbands, shoes, or water bottles and what they can tell you about each person's personality. The color black is preferred by empowered people and these individuals are never easy to manipulate. A black wristband might also signify mystery and indicate the person is hiding a part of their personality. It might come as a surprise that black cars are involved in more accidents than cars of any other color. One of the easiest ways to glimpse a person's personality is by looking at the color of his car. It is said that owners of dark blue cars tend to be practical, calm, and loyal and they drive much more carefully and cautiously than people who own black cars. Now, the owner of a red car is likely to be energetic and showy, and this person wants to get your attention. People who own a purple car are unique, and they usually don't care what others think about them. The owner of a purple car wants you to know that he or she is one of a kind. White cars reflect purity and innocence, and if you own this car, you might be a status-seeking extrovert. Now, the owner of a green car is calm and cares about the environment, and yellow cars are likely to carry people who have an optimistic personality. Another extremely common color is silver, and if this is the color of your car, you are less likely to get in an accident. Silver cars represent a calm, 
cool personality. Now, before we continue, keep in mind that the color of a person's car might also be nothing more than the color they were stuck with because they couldn't afford a different color, which is much more likely with older, less expensive cars. Now, when trying to read someone's personality with colors, you can never go off of a single data point. You have to look at the bigger picture. You'll have much more success with this knowledge by looking at the colors of the person's clothes, smartphone, car, room and any other item that is an extension of that person such as the color of his room before i leave you today i want to ask you a simple question how much better of a salesman could you become once you understand the psychology behind colors how much better do you think you would be at reading a person's personality every single day the powerful effects of colors are used by big brands to influence your mood and subconscious decision making don't you think it's time that you took the power back into your own hands the psychology of colors can be used and read in so many different ways and to harness this knowledge for yourself, it might be time to consider how you can use certain colors to your advantage in your everyday life. Until next time, thanks for watching. Okay, so that was a little bit of lightness to end off the lecture on a Friday, Friday morning. Now you can all go and look at the colors of your car and see what you know about yourself. But, uh, okay. Uh, just remember BJ's session, and I have a uh, office hour next week on Wednesday, and um, that's it. Have a good weekend.